On today's show, I have on the phone Sue Bowles. Sue is a speaker, writer, and has a blog on eating disorder, recovery, and other mental health issues. Being in recovery herself, she has a passion for educating and encouraging others. With a down-to-earth style, her desire is to help and support others, confronting and addressing their own struggles in their pursuit of healing. Sue says it's never too late to start. Her message is one of hope perseverance and encouragement despite the challenges sue is certified professional life coach we would love to hear from you what the lord is doing in your life or have seen in others write us at stories at the or call us and leave a voicemail at 407-624-9957 we at the millennium beat are looking forward to hearing what the lord is doing in your life remember that the millennium beat is helping people share their stories Welcome to the Millennium Beat Podcast, where we like to encourage the world one story at a time. Now get ready to hear stories from around the world that encourage and uplift you. Now to the show with your host, Kevin James. Hey everybody, this is the Millennium Beat. My name is Kevin James, I'm the host. Today I have a phone interview with Sue Bowles. Sue, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Kevin, I'm excited. I am excited too, this is gonna be great. Uh, we met through the internet and through the Facebook uh, pages. It was it was great. It kind of works. It's really good. So, Sue, let's go back to the beginning of your life. That's how I always like to start my interviews, where you were born and stuff like that and how you grew up a little bit. So, so let's start off from the early days of Sue's life. From the early days. Well, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and I am Dayton. I am the middle of five kids, youngest girl. And... Um, yeah, the kind of the story kind of starts almost at the beginning. Okay. So let me just let me just jump right in. Mm-hmm. Um, how it, yeah, let me just jump right in. We're just going to cut right to the chase. Right. Um, the story really starts in first grade, and, and let me say this a little caveat out that you're listening before. Some of the things I'm about ready to share are pretty heavy. So if you find yourself being triggered or you know not sure, maybe there's little small ears in the, in the room or something, feel free to hit pause, kind of engage in some self-care, maybe help, you know, bring somebody out of the room, give them something else to do with something. Because some of these topics are kind of heavy and may not be appropriate for for younger ears. Oh, so, that's good to say that. Thank having you. said that, yeah, no problem. Having said that, um, when I was seven years old in first grade, uh, after school one day, a classmate, for a lack of a better word, enticed me into the woods on the school property. And that cost me a body. And um, there's no other way to say it other than to say that Bobby raped me and not just once. Um, so I am a childhood rape survivor. And the kicker to it, though, is that that wasn't bad enough. So my mom came looking for me. And I left out of one end of the woods and Bobby left out of the other. His last words to me were, don't tell anybody. And I didn't realize that power those words were going to have over my life. Right. It became my 15-year secret. I didn't tell anyone to my senior year of college. Wow. So that's kind of where it started. Um, and, and, and the way, the way I, I have a couple of ways I try to describe it. And, and one is that my emotions became frozen in time that day. Because when you're back in the early 70s, this was not a topic that was being discussed. Mm-hmm. It was not on the radar. So no one knew to ask any questions. I sure as heck didn't know to say anything. 
and, and, and it was just, it just, it was nobody's fault, but it was, the story wasn't told. The only person that did something wrong that day was Bobby. Right. And it took me a long time to get there, and I'll get to that part later. Um, but, so, to give the thumbnail sketch of the early years, we had that. Okay? Frozen in time. And after that, um, when you start off course, the longer you go, the further off course you get. My family, uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Now, thank God that he is 29 years sober, and I'm so confident and proud of him. Relationships have been restored, and are probably stronger than they've ever been. Um, but when I was growing up, there was some emotional abuse. There was some, there was some um, mental abuse, um, never physical. But you know, there there were there were things that, that made you doubt your abilities, right? Or um, you know, I would screw up. Those kind of things, or the tape, or the, the things I was interpreting. I can't say those things were ever said to me. It's how my mind, which was already scarred from the event of Bobby, was taken it. Right. So I had that going on. As I kind of got through high school, um, I dealt with anxiety. I dealt with depression. Um, I was suicidal twice. You know, from most, one of the times was my junior high school. Um, during that time, I mean, uh, during high school, one of the things, there was some other sexual, uh, sexual abuse from, from a neighborhood boy. Um, you know, things happened when I was dating you know, different guys that didn't need to happen. So there was just a lot of um, feeling discarded, feeling um, of very little value. So had all that going on, you got depression, you got the anxiety, you got the suicidal, suicidal thoughts as well. By the time I get to college, um, remember what I said earlier, when you start off base, the longer you go, the further off you are. By the time I get to be 18, 19, 20, I, I'm like as far, I'm, I'm, I'm more than a 45 degree angle from the center. Um, and my brain was not processing things clearly. And over time, I developed an eating disorder. So, and to me, how it kind of came out was, um, in the dining hall at, 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 at college. At that time, there was more, you know, certain meal times, and if you missed the window, you missed the meal. And again, because of the things going on in my mind over the years, my brain didn't process things correctly. So what it ended up being was I, w- I was hungry. I wanted to get into the struggling food. But because by this point in time, I was so hurting, and so messed up emotionally, I had become a master of wearing masks. Mm. And I had become a master of fake it till you make it. Right. And where it, became, where it went was that she didn't have a need. Sue always had it together. Sue was the solid one. So how my mind interpreted it was that if I was hungry, my mind was telling me everybody was looking at me. And I started getting paranoid about it. And the problem with everybody looking at me to go get some more food is that they would know that Sue had a need. And by golly, we can't know, let anybody know that Sue's weak and that Sue has a need. So instead of going up and getting more food, I dumped my tray and I got out of Dodge. And what I learned to do was curb my hunger by snacking. And I might have a bag of chips. I might have a bag of chips and someone say, well, did you eat? Yeah, I ate. I didn't lie because I had a bag of chips. Where, where the lie came in was when they said, well, what'd you have? Oh, I had a sandwich and a bag of chips. 
and, and that because eating disorders are shrouded in secrecy. You don't want to be found out. So um, I had all that going on. So by the time my senior year of college had, you know, my mind is not a healthy place to be in any way, shape, or form. I was not processing things clearly. Um, my emotions were off the charts. I was an angry girl in grade school, and I didn't realize it. I, I realize now where it came from. But there was somebody that signed my eighth, eighth grade picture book. You know, you have, you have your, your, your classes and everything. He signed it to the girl who's always mad. And I didn't realize for a long time how dead on Monica was. And, and, and I look at it now, it's like, I was. I was very angry. And it was all coming out against myself. Yeah, I was imploding. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the thumbnail sketch of Sue's life uh, for the first half of my life. And it, 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 as you know already, and I hope listeners can already sense that it got a lot better. But you know, really need them to understand a little bit of the foundation so that as they hear the rest of the story, they can understand um, just what God has done. Let me ask you a question about the early years. I'm from your, you know, seven years old and stuff like that. What was your mm-hmm. household like? Um, uh, was it a non-Christian, Christian, um, no religion? What was it? What was the atmosphere of God in the household? We were raised Catholic, so we went to uh, uh, except for kindergarten and first grade and sixth grade. I was in Catholic school all the way all the way up to up to through high school. Okay. So we were we were, we were Catholic. Um, as I got older in high school, I'm singing in the guitar group. Um, and my mom and dad, when we had the, 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 the church parish you know, annual summer festival, mom and dad would, would, would coordinate a game section, young adult game area. So we were running booths and helping with that. Um, so we were, we were very involved, very involved in youth group. There was a Catholic retreat program called Search in high school that we were involved with. Mom and dad, what they call follow-up parents, where we have follow-up meetings, we have them at our house. Um, so, you know, it, that we were very, very involved in, 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 in our churches, very involved. Now, on the early years when you were talking about the thing that happened to you and stuff like that, and obviously the, the typical thing of somebody that is a predator or somebody's, you know, don't do this, I'll kill you, or I'll, do, I'll harm you, they, they put fear in you so that they— you know, they don't get in trouble or, you know, get caught for what they did. Right. You know, so, right. so there, there's a spirit there too, you know, I mean, it's just not mm-hmm. just from the act. They're also a fair, you know, and then, cause you said it was many years before you, you could actually handle and, and deal with the situation that happened to you at, at young age, mm-hmm. which should never have happened. Yeah. But it, it, you right. know, it did. Um, were you, on your siblings and stuff like that. I mean, was there any type of withdrawal from you? Because this is a traumatic situation. At, at, you know, first grade being raped um, from a boy. Uh, was this boy a bigger boy? Or, I mean, was he a different grade, or was it in the same grade as you? He, he, he was. Uh, he was even my grade. I think it was my grade, maybe one grade higher. Um, you know, maybe 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 I mean, you know. He was, you know, he was, he was a classmate. Right, right. He was a classmate, and and, and for the longest time, there's been a gap in my life that I really don't remember. And and as I look back at it now, I, I remember more more things as as you know, little by little. Um, 
but for the longest time, like I said, things were frozen in time. Um, and I was in the deep freeze. I was really in the deep freeze. Um, you know, but, but I, 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 I do, the, the only thing I can say is that because that just wasn't on the radar. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I knew something wrong had happened. Right. But I was scared. Because even, even when, you know, when, when, when things were happening, okay, mm-hmm. and there were kids walking by on the path, father said, be quiet, because he didn't want to get caught. And I, I remember, um, I remember later, you know, again, the power of that. Obviously, he knew something, he was doing something wrong, because he was afraid of getting caught. But where I've gone now, though, as, as I've worked through everything and, and, you know, as, as we talk, you know, I, I hope listeners understand that it's been a lot of work and literally over a decade with the same counselor to be able to get to the point where I can tell my story. And it doesn't mean, and, and we'll get, we'll get through all that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I know now after I've been able to forgive Bobby and I look at it that, it wasn't on the radar. So what was happening in Bobby's life that A, he would even have any of that kind of knowledge and B, act on it. You know? And, and, and so my heart breaks for him now. Long as time, it's mad at me. But um, when I think about it now, somewhere along here, right, they say the abuse becomes the abuser. And I can't help but think that's what happened with Bobby as well. Unfortunately, at a very young age for him as well. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, that left her, as you know, to say what left an indelible mark in my life uh, is an understatement. Um, it set me on a, on a trajectory that, um, you know, nobody expected. Um, but it, by the time we get to the end, you know, I hope you listeners hear that um, God, God, God can even redeem that kind of stuff. So it, it, it is, you know, they start taking off. Um, you know, when I, when I, uh, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I said I was depressed and everything. I was involved in that retreat program. I was went to college. When I went to college, I was the first person in my family to, um, well, my brother went away to college for two years, and then he left and went into the Air Force. So by the time I get to college, and I'm actually graduating, I'm the first college graduate in my family. So I was a trailblazer. Um, but because of that, again, there was the whole, to have it together, too. Um, I have, I have all, that, all those things going on. And I became a Christian when I was in college. Yeah, I discovered that difference between religion and relationship. And it was the summer between my junior and senior years of college. And, and, and for me, you know, Christian music was, a, it was really starting to come out at that point in time. I came to Christ May 31st, 1985, at a Petra concert, Beat Assistant Tour, Terra Arena, Dayton, Ohio. I, I, it's, it's marked in time. That's <laughs> um, good. And yeah, and, and I didn't know what was happening. A co I worked in a fast food restaurant, my first job, a co worker invited me to the concert. I was like, sure. And I'd never heard of the band. I didn't know anything about Christian music. I, I thought I was Christian because I was Catholic, you know, it's kind of how the mindset was. And we went and, and I kind of, I first I'm kind of reserved. And then as the show goes on, I'm kind of like, these people have something that I don't have, and I think I want it. And I just kind of started getting this, they had a real joy to them. 
And by the time we get to the end, the band band is being patient and and, and he's throwing prayers, he's Christ. I you know, and then invited people who prayed it for the first time to go backstage and have some material for him. I looked at Buddy, the guy that invited me, and said, "Let's go." And I didn't know what was going on. You know, let's go. <laughs> so, and, and and bless his heart. What was great is that after the show, we went back to the restaurant where we both worked. And he said, "Let's well, tell somebody what happened." And I I will appreciate that because that helped me feel good first time. Uh, I don't know, you know, you're kind of embarrassed about it and everything. And, and just Buddy encouraging me to verbalize it really helped feel it in my mind. The thing is, I went back to college, and it took a year for me to realize my lifestyle was supposed to change. And my junior year was really stressful. I lived with someone who was an alcoholic. I was my roommate. She left at, at, at Christmas break to go into treatment. Um, and I was over-involved in college. Um, when, you, when, when you don't know what's going on emotionally and you don't want to deal with your stuff, you find ways to numb. And for me, for me, activity became my number. So, so I was over-involved. I mean, my junior year of college, I coordinated, I coordinated homecoming, the winter formal, and an 18-hour dance upon all in one school year. On top of taking an overload of classes, on top of plugging a sorority spring, spring semester, um, being a college radio DJ, section editor of the school paper, uh, you know, and on, working 20 hours a week, I mean, just on and on and on. So I was in theater. I was way over-involved because, because that's where I got my value. Because up to this point in time, I had been devalued my entire life, in my eyes. So, and so, if I was seen, I had value. And if I had value, then I had worth. And that's kind of, you know, so activity became my number because of that. And um, the way I describe it is that if I didn't have, if I kept busy, I didn't have to feel. If I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to deal with myself. And so that's where that's where it all came in, and that then the eating disorder kicked in. So college high was a very tumultuous time. My dean of students at Highland, um, my freshman year, ended up kind of being my confidant you know, pretty pretty early on 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 in, in, in school semester. Um, I was already over involved, you know, not attending a class, which was supposed to be my major that my advisor was teaching. You know, it helps to attend class. May I give that little you know. Uh, Successes. <laughs> so um, I got called in the dean's office and he kind of started asking some questions. And then I kind of started going to him. So by the time senior year rolls around, Ed and I have a great conversation, great relationship. He's been kind of my compliment. And it was spring semester, senior year, and he could tell that I was not ready to go into the work, workforce. So he was giving me, as we would talk, he would give me different homework exercises about my goals and my dreams and, you know, what I want to do and how I see myself or how I think other students, all these different things, trying to help me be prepared to be a professional. And we were going over my homework one, one day, and, and I can't tell you what the homework was about, and I can't tell you what this question of me was, but I went off on some random answer. And, and in my book, I talk about it. I was expecting the lead pattern of his carpet. And uh, um, 
my, my comments and was, well, yeah, when society tells you not to say anything, and I kind of let my trail, my voice trail off. I did not know that my secret was wanting to come out because I hadn't really even thought about it. it just, but when you have something like that, it's going to fester, it's going to leak, and it's going to come out. And, and Ed, very compassionately, you said, did your parents hurt you? And I said, no, not them. Did somebody else? I said, yeah. And what happened? That was the first time I told somebody. And I didn't realize that liber- how liberating that moment would be for me. Um, so, you know, at that point in time, the game started to change, even though I didn't know it. Um, I went off to grad school that fall, and I was not only did I graduate college, but then I was the first person in our family to go to graduate school. I had interviewed at, I had applied to one school at, at, at that time, Mankato State University, you know, Minnesota State University in Mankato. So I, I applied at Mankato, I got accepted, and they asked to interview me for two different graduate assistantships with student affairs. One in residence life, one in student activity. So, day after I graduated on Sunday, went home by two, my Monday night, Monday afternoon, I guess, we're on the road from Minnesota, we're driving up to Minnesota. And I had one interview Tuesday night, the next one on Wednesday, and then we turn around and go right back home to Ohio. And um, they, you know, they offered both assistantships to me. So, here I am, not, you know, not even a week out of college. Applying to an interview in the grad school for two different assistants, getting both of them offered to me. And the first real moment where I heard from God came while I was at that, at that, at that university in, in my interview. And it wasn't audible, but it was three sentences, very clear. I was coming back Tuesday night from my student activities interview, walking across campus, and just three sentences, tiny day. I want you here for a reason. Don't ask why. Just trust me. And at that moment in time, I was like, okay, this is just a formality. This is what I'm going to do. And, um, you know, you know and, and lo and behold, yeah, I, I ended up going to graduate school. I graduated there. During that time, it was probably, I don't know, maybe a month or so into school, my supervisor, I was the residence hall director. My supervisor would be in her office at night uh, sometimes a week. You know, down there, I was struggling with some stuff. And Amy Winter was just fantastic. And she started talking. And she could tell what was going on. And my secret came out again. And she helped connect me with the counseling center the next day. So while I was in grad school, I was kind of starting to work on it. But, you know, that got me through grad school. Went through a whole time period um, where I was, wasn't seeing anybody. Um, never really dealt with it until really six years ago. And I'll, I'll circle back to that. But, you know, I had all this stuff going on. And if I look back now, I see the hand of God. You know, I think back to those three sentences frequently. And, and, and I like to then look back and kind of, kind of uh, put a landscape to it. Say, okay, this is one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons. You know, I want you here for a reason. Don't ask why, just trust me. So many times, like, God, why do you want me here? What is it about? You know, I think when we, we go through that and we want, we want the answer. We want to know. 
you tell me now, God, you said you had a reason. I know you said, don't ask why, that's fine, but would you tell me anyway? You know, and, and I think and it's okay to have those real conversations with God. He's big enough to be paralyzed. But as I've looked back, I, I graduated grad school in 88. And as I look back now, and, and I, I go back to that, and, and I can see so many different reasons. It's been so cool just to watch how God works. You know, the, the rearview mirror is uh, it, it's an exciting journey when you start looking back. It's, it's really crazy. And, and some of the things that happened there are things that have continued on, you know, up to this point in time, and they're going to continue on. Um, so, yeah, I started my career in student services, and I worked on college campuses up until 1994. Um, one of the cool things is that when you're working on college campuses, you know, if, if you're not working like summer conferences on this campus, we have the summer off. So I got involved in a sports camp out in Missouri called Canicut Christian Sports Camp. I don't know if you've heard of that before. No, no, I haven't. Okay. That name Joe White runs it. And uh, this is one of the reasons that, you know, one of the fruit of being in Minnesota. While I was in Minnesota, I got a magazine that I had not subscribed to. It was called Today's Prime Time. And, and Joe, Joe put it out at that point in time. And Joe's an author, did Promise Keeper stuff and all this other stuff. Uh, some family and everything. And a long story short was that I ended up um, buying some of the books. And then after my first year post-grad, um, reading the book, I was like, this kind of sounds like a cool place to work. So I ended up filling an application and ended up being on staff out there for five summers. Worked in the kitchen. Never stopped working in a hot kitchen, 14 hours a day with no air conditioning, serving... You know, 400 people three times a day would be the best time in my life. It was fantastic. But um, with that, I started to grow. I started to grow my Christianity. And um, I left the first, first college I was at. And while I was working, working at, at the camp in the summer, I started working at, at a university here in, here in Columbus, Ohio, in the Columbus, Ohio area in Delaware. And um, from there, you know, worked there for about, for about five years. Left that, left that, went into youth ministry. And, and so I, start, I left that youth ministry, and unfortunately had a nasty church split, so I went to the business world. I share all that to say that even through all that, God continued to weave things together and bring people in my life. Um, and one of the things that happened was in 2000, 2005 and 2008. I had gone through a time where yeah, I was out of counseling. Pretty much everything was fine. My pastor's wife passed away from stage 4 cancer in 2005. And three years after it, I was still grieving her as if it was yesterday. And some of my red flags from my eating disorder started coming up. And, and, and just to share a little bit about the eating disorder real quick. Um, there are a lot of different eating disorders out there. There's a lot of misinformation and myths out there about eating disorders. And the eating disorder I have is called OBSED. It's an acronym for Other Specified Eating and Eating Disorder. And what that means is that I don't fit the criterion for anorexia, or anemia, or any of the other 
um, eating disorders. And I don't, I don't fit all, I don't fit all the diagnostic criteria. Eating disorders are not about vanity. They are not a diet gone wrong. They are not anything about any of that. They're not even really about body image. Eating disorders are a mental health, a biologically based mental health issue. They are also the most lethal of all mental health issues. Not only because of the suicide that happens in the middle of an eating disorder when the mind just isn't processing things, but also because of the damage that is done to the body long after an eating disorder behavior might end. So, um, I knew I had what I called odd eating behaviors. I would even say I had anorexic tendencies, but I never called it an eating disorder until when I met Amanda. And Amanda is my counselor. And I met Amanda after my friend died. My friend was my pastor's wife. Three years after her name is Mallory, three years after she died, I'm still grieving her like yesterday. So I called my pastor and then talked to him. And he connected me with Amanda. He knew Amanda because after his wife died, two of his girls developed severe eating disorders. So he, Amanda is an eating disorder specialist. Um, so I, I connected with her. And um, I'm still with her now. It's been a little over 12 years now. And, and I have gone places with her that I didn't know I needed to go and that I never thought I would go. I think that in my back of my mind, I, I kind of hoped maybe someday, but then I kind of brush it off. So um, with Amanda, um, there's so much to tell about her, but um, what I love most is that she's real. She's authentic. She gives me some tough love when I need it. She'll kick me in, kick me in the backside when I need it. And she'll just sit with me. And Amanda is the first person that I really started dealing with the race. All up to this point in time, I had told somebody senior year of college. Eight, nine years had transpired. Hadn't really dealt with it since. And now we're, I'm already out of the field and doing something else. I'm out of the field for 10 years. More than that, 15 years. Or 20. And then being twined out of the field 20 years before I finally really started dealing with it. So I tell somebody when I'm in my 20s, I don't start dealing with it until I'm in my 40s. And um, Amanda, Amanda told me, I looked at Amanda about three to four sessions in. I said, what do you think it is? Why is my eating disorder come? Why is this you know, eating pattern starting to come up again? And I was starting to have my red flags. And for me, one of the red flags is um, going to the refrigerator. I open it up and I'm hungry. And I can't decide what I want to eat. And my brain shuts down. And, and it gets overwhelmed. And I can't make a decision. So I go back to my old survival techniques. I shut off my hunger. I shut the door and I move on with life. And I don't eat. And that was starting to come up when um, I was raising my so I looked at Amanda a couple sessions in, and she said, I think it's just a bunch of unresolved issues. Mm-hmm. We got to work. And that was 2008. I'm a Christian, so I, I was a Christian counselor, and I wanted that. 
And um, he later told me we had to get me stronger in the present he could deal with the past. Because even though she found out very quickly about us, I also wasn't prepared to deal with it. Right. Not yet. And even though you think I would be, because I told a couple people, just because you tell somebody the story doesn't mean you're ready to face the story. So it got to be 2014, and um, we were starting to deal with it for the first time. And that was the most gut-wrenching process I've ever been through. Um, even though it had been so very long since the event, everything that a survivor goes through immediately after an event like that and a trauma in their life, I was going through decades later. I went through the blaming myself. The woulda, shoulda, couldn't. I shouldn't have done this. It's my fault. All those things. I was hacked off of God. I was hacked off of God like you would not believe it. Like, where was he? Why did he abandon me? Why did he let that happen? I had to deal with all that. If you're going to deal with what happened, you got to deal with every root of it. And it is not a process for the same part right. at all. So we're starting to dig into it. And um, it's gut-wrenching because that one of the only words I can find. Because I was having to, I was having to face my story for the first time. And I know that sounds weird, but again, activity had been my number. And old old habits die hard. Right, they do. Even though I didn't, even even though I didn't have college in that activity, I surrounded myself with everything else. I was a youth leader. I was in the worship band. I was on the sound team. I was in the drama ministry. But all the old patterns were still there, just with different frosting. Right. So, yeah, I was still I was still numbing myself because I hurt and because I didn't know how to deal with it. So, again, the math. She's a great Christian. She's involved in everything. With her. Hey, she's a youth leader, you know, all this stuff. I ended up being the office manager at the church. I was on staff with an organization doing national high school ministry, you know, so everything looked great. Right, on the outside, everything did look good, I'm sure. But the inside... And it was a lie. It was, yeah, mm -hmm. it was a lie. It was a lie. It was a lie until a man that came along. So, um, this is where the story really gets fun, though. These last six years have been a ride like I would never believe. Um, are you familiar with a, with a Christian musician named Rich Mullins? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rich. I mean, I don't know a particular song, but I've heard the name. Okay. Awesome God was his big song. Our God is an awesome God. Um, so, okay. Yeah, that's, that's the song. That's, that's the song. Oh, yeah. always said I know that one. Oh, yeah. No, okay, there you go. That's that. That guy. Step by step and, you know, yeah. singing praise to the Lord, the name he grant was recorded and everything. So, um, where, 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 the, where the left turn came in all this, where the redemption starts coming in, um, is, is in 2014. Up to this point in time, you know, I'm, I'm hurting and I'm finding all kinds of ways to hide it. And, you know, the, the evening was up and down. I was not at a healthy weight. I'd go out to the camp 
and I'd be excited because I wanted to gain some money. My goal when I went out there working in the kitchen, I wanted to gain some money. I was excited if I gained a little weight. And just, just to say this, I, I don't talk numbers. I never want to trigger, trigger somebody if I talk in numbers. Right. Um, and an eating disorder is not about numbers. An eating disorder is, a, is like I say, it's an emotional thing, and it comes out in your relationship with food. Ultimately, an eating disorder is about emotions, not delta. Right. Um, so, so having said all that, um, 2014, there's a movie done called Ragamuffin, and it's put out. Um, the, the producer contacted the family, friends of its mom, and in conjunction they did this movie. I went to see it. Tough watch. Especially in the first 20 minutes. First time I'm doing a lot of silent wiping in my tears. You know, I'm trying to turn on my face so nobody can see me. Because again, all patterns. Somebody sees me wiping the tears. Something's wrong with Sue. Right. I thought Sue was fine. I thought Sue had it together. What, what, what's the emotion about, you know? Right. So again, all these old patterns of, of hiding are coming out in so many different ways. Because what was inside me was screaming to come out. And it was finding any way, and I was trying to lock and block it every chance I had. So this movie hit. And um, I ended up seeing it a number of times that, that spring. Later that, it was probably late spring, early summer, the same group of family and friends and the movie producer Talk about having a retreat to continue the conversations about the themes in the movie. Some of those themes in the movie are reckless behavior, family relationships, relationships with, with parents, um, reckless abandon, math, mm. those kind of things. You know, and, and, and dealing with dealing with secrets, dealing with this stuff. I was scheduled to go on a vacation to see some friends national. Um, I was wrong for this retreat. And I had an internal type of war going on about food and, and, and just different things. It was songs on the radio, songs that had come out right about that time, just thing about, about the retreat, different things. And I finally pulled the trigger and, and committed to going to the retreat. Mm-hmm. One of the coolest things about the retreat is that about two weeks beforehand, they open up a Facebook group for just the participants in that retreat. It's a chance for you to get to know each other, especially this first time we were sharing our stories. And um, for the first time in my life, I went public with this story. Up to this point in time, it had always been in a trusted situation with someone I knew. Right. It had been with a counselor or a confidant. Never just putting it out there. And as it was, I looked, I, I, I Facebook stopped in the room for two days. I was uh, reading everybody else's posts, responding to other people, again, making it look really good, you know, making it look really good. Mm-hmm. The intention wasn't on me. But you know how, how God has a way? And when God's working on you, you can run, but you can't hide. Right. Um, I, I finally realized I couldn't hide. And one morning, it was just, I, I just got this sense of, it was just time. So I put on a pot of coffee, sat out in the dining room, and for a half hour, I wrote out Story of Bobby. And I gulped when I hit 
stand on that. I was petrified. I'm not going to share the whole story because I talk about some of my book, but um, um, I went to that first retreat and I went in very broken and I went in um, calling myself the holy exception. And and let me explain that for the listeners. Um, Because, again, my mind was very twisted and was not processing things correctly. Um, I had convinced myself, ultimately the enemy had convinced me that everything in the Bible was good enough for everybody else but me. Thus, I was the holy exception. See where I'm getting that from? So, um, you know, I, I was the holy exception because you know, when God wrote the Bible, he obviously didn't have me in mind because I didn't matter. You know, you can see how, how twisted this is. Oh, yeah. But, you know, but at this point in time, this is, but when your brain is so warped out, when you're not feeding yourself correctly, because this is in the middle of my eating disorder growth again, um, and, and you're dealing with some very intense emotional stuff, if there's an end that the enemy has, maybe he can have some con. And, and, and he was trying to take me on a ride. So I went into this retreat, very broken. One of the staff members has since told me that he described it as a Hail Mary pass for me. Mm-hmm. A, a Hail Mary pass. Could God really love me? And could his kids really love me? Do I really have worth? And um, I, 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 I wish you could see the smile on my face right now. Because Everything else that has happened the last six years started at that retreat. And, um, yeah, and then before I get into that, I, I feel like I've been going off on so many things. Is there something that, is there anything you had a question on you want to circle back on before I get to, to the rest of the good stuff? Nope, you're good. Keep going. Um, yeah, everything's good so far. It's, you know, you could, you know, one of the things that was popping in my head earlier back on some of the things you're saying is uh, what the picture I was seeing in my mind is when we have situations that have hurt us or, have, you know, damaged us mentally, I saw a room that you kind of like put those things in a room and you lock the door, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then mm-hmm. from that point you say, okay, and you forget about it because it's behind the locked door. You don't see it. You don't, you're not thinking about it, but it's still there because you never dealt with it. And, and how many years did you do that? You did that for a long time um, before you started okay. having, you know, many years and you have to, now you have to start dealing with it. Uh, and then sometimes you might let it out and you did a few times. You talked to somebody and you, you told them the situation that happened to you at a very young age. And they and then, okay. And then you can put it back in the door. You put it back in the room again. Lock the door. Mm-hmm. You know, and then yeah. when, when situations happen to you, um, sometimes it gets out and, 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 you know, it comes to the forefront of your mind and stuff like that. And it sounds like that was the trigger to a lot of your ear eating disorder was because of, of the trauma of the, the early days. Um, you know, things went from there. It went, it went downhill from there, you know, it was, and, and I, yeah. And, and I didn't realize any of that. Um, yeah, it, 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 you know, sitting on the other side of it now, I can see it. Right. But in the middle of it, that's why I needed people around me to help me understand. Because you know, I needed that. I needed that protection. I, 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 
I'll, I'll kind of get into this here in a minute. Um, but um, I, I dabbled with cutting at one point in time, you know, in the middle of all this. So, um, you know, it was screaming to come out, and I was fighting it, not knowing that freedom was not trying, is not in trying to break down the door. But it didn't, it didn't appear as freedom to me. It appeared as shame and embarrassment and um, uh, fault and blame and guilt. And, and, and all these things the enemy was throwing at me. And that, those, were the, those were the signs that I saw. And, and trying to see through all of that fog to the light of Christ was, was, I needed somebody else to be the eye. I have pulled binoculars for me because I couldn't see it. I could not see it at that time. It just, it was, it was too much. It was too much because there's been decades of stuff that I had shoved into this room. We think, think of, um, think of like if something gets lost in the back corner of your refrigerator, and then more stuff gets put on top of it. Then you clean up the refrigerator, but you miss that corner, and then more stuff gets put in front of it. By the time you finally find the original, you know, container, there's a whole lot of science project going on in there, you know? <laughs> and that's where you, you're like, I'm not even going to save the container. I'm fixing the whole thing out, you know? Um, you know, so, you know, so that's what was happening to me emotionally with this, all of this. Everything from the day Bobby raped me up to 2014 when I started dealing with it. You're talking 35, 40 years. That's, that's half a lifetime, literally, of not dealing with emotions and letting them suffer. And then you get lost in, you get lost in, you get caught up in, in, in the spider's web. And then you get lost in the story of what story you told somebody else. And you, then you, you, you end up chasing your own tail because you're like, what lie did I just tell? And I got to make sure I tell another lie to cover up that lie. You know, and, and who did I tell to? And, and oh my gosh, what did I, what, and then you might start to like, okay, but if I just screwed up and, and, and just ended up outing myself, how am I going to cover that? What lie am I going to tell to cover that? You know, and, and that's just, it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting starting to keep track of your own life. And that's, and that's the point I got to. And eating disorder is an addiction. Just like alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or anything else, it's an addiction. Right. The, the difference, though, is that when you're dealing with an eating disorder, for recovery to happen, you have to engage in the behavior of the item you're avoiding. And that's what sets it apart from any other recovery. Alcohol, drugs, and it's not that. Recovery is to involve avoiding the object. There's a bar, I'm not going to go in there. Whereas when you're dealing with an eating disorder, it's, there's a restaurant, that you're, it's, it's lunchtime, I need to eat. If you don't eat, and you're, if, if you're trying, if you, are trying to be in recovery for an eating disorder. If you don't eat, you're going to die. Over time. Over time, in the most extreme setting. So that is what sets apart the eating disorder recovery challenge from anything else, is that you have to engage and make yourself engage with what you've been avoiding. 
or what you have not been dealing with correctly as compared to, okay, I, I need to distract myself. I'm going to go drink water instead of go drink a beer. And if, if I say, okay, instead of having a good sandwich, I'm going to have a bag of candy. It doesn't quite match, you know. <laughs> I'm doing myself damage in a lot of different ways. So, you know, when you have all this I've always said, you know, dealing with order uh, disorders of such of drinking drugs, those you can you can say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Or even like simple thing like not drinking soda. You can say, okay, I'm not drinking Mm -hmm. soda anymore. I'm not doing drugs anymore. I'm I'm not drinking alcohol. But when it comes to food, you as like you said a few seconds ago, you must eat. Because if you don't, yeah. you you won't be long. You won't be alive in, in fifty days from now if you're not eating. Right. So that, right. that's the hardest part is the fact that you you still have to do something. Soda, you can stop. You can say nope. I'm never gonna have a soda again. Bear, I'm never gonna have a bear again. But you can't say I'm never gonna eat again. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and I think that's an aspect of, of recovery and eating disorders that people don't really realize or right. think about. In part because there's so much misinformation out there about it. Um, we're, we're, in, in 2016 is where I really started dealing with the eating disorders. So I'm coming up on that. I can talk a little more about what recovery was like in terms of really going through some things. Um, because that, that also is not for the same of heart. <laughs> um, so 2014, going to this retreat. Yeah, and, and, and for your listeners, the retreat organization is called Walking Stick Retreat. And again, it's put on by the family and friends of Rich Mullins. And, and they do it every year. Um, actually, our next one is end of June in Indianapolis. And then I understand there's one in Pennsylvania in November. So they're trying, they're trying to do two a year. And, and these people have become my tribe. They are, they're my, they're my, they're, they're my, they're my people. Uh, my people. And, uh, you know, they're my family. And, and you know, we see each other three days a year and we do life together in retreat rooms the rest of the time. And um, what happened is especially that first year, we had a bunch of ragamuffins. None of us knew each other. So we came in broken. A lot of people have been burned by the church. I had been burned by the church. There is stuff about that church book that I'm taking to my grave. Um, but I was I was, I was on staff when it happened. I saw it all go down. Um, so, with this retreat, these people have Jesus with skin on. And, and ultimately, we all just want to be loved. We want to know that we are lovable and that we have value, that we have worth, and that God loves us. And it's one thing to hear it, but it's a whole other thing to be immersed in it with people that are just like you that are hurt just like you and are holding on by a thread just like you that might be ready to let go of that thread and are there on a last-ditch effort. It's a whole different ballgame. And and we quickly quickly discover that it's a safe place. It's a place to be real. It's a place we can take off our mask. And that first year was so instrumental to everything. I went in, as I said earlier, telling myself I was the holy exception. 
everything in the Bible was good enough for somebody else to touch me because, because I had not felt love before. I had not felt lovable. And I didn't feel valued or that I had worth. And I was imploding. I was I was imploding. I was in a desperate point. And in three days' time, and it's not the retreat, and it's not the people. It's what God does at the retreat through the people. If it is God doing all this, I went from unholy exception to saying and actually starting to believe Jesus Christ is absolutely crazy about me. And he not only loves me, he likes me. And, and that was like, I mean, I hope I'm trying, I hope I'm painting a good enough picture to understand the torment in my mind for 30 years or more. And then to, to in just a short period of time, have this paradigm shift. It was, I do not use the phrase life-changing very often, but this moment in time was life-changing for me. And what has happened the last five years is evidence of that. I had to own my story. We all have our stories. That's the one thing we all have that nobody can take from us. I had to own my story. Um, my story has now become a book. Uh, I wrote my first book after I started going on these retreats. Um, my book is actually called This Much I Know, The Space Between. And, and like I said earlier, it's a two-part two-part book, and the title is referencing two things as well. This Much I Know is my story. It's the one thing nobody can take to each of us. This is the one thing we know. And the space between talks about that healing journey. And, and one of the things that, the, when I started writing the book, I started writing the book after the first retreat. And it first was going to come out more of a, uh, I think more of like a devotional thing. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like this much I know and have little little, little um, uh, snippet summary at the end. And then as it kind of morphed, it kind of became, it was therapeutic for sure, but it became my story. and. And some of the some of the, the concepts I have for the first book I kept. So, at the first half of the book, at the end of each one, I, I, I share share a little little summary thought. It's this much I know. Dot dot dot. So, for example, after the bottom that chapter talking about Bobby, um, I say this much I know: no matter what happens, God sees, God knows, and God is at work to make good come out of even unspeakable horrors. So the first half of the book ends with some kind of thought like that. The second half of the book talks about the healing journey that happened through the retreat. And I talk about that space between let me share this it's a paragraph this a quick little paragraph you know, on the back of the book that's also in the book the quote from it. Because when we're talking about our story, the space between is that gap. That time of questioning and anger and confusion and doubt and whatever else you can think of. It's the great area of uncertainty, of wondering what the point is. So the second half of the book talks about that. So the very first retreat, I had to deal, I had to face my story. I was in denial about my story. I was not 
telling me what happened to me. It was I would say I would say it, but there was no emotional attachment to it at all. It was just words. It was a four-letter word coming out of my mouth. I was great, you know. Um, but I, w- I was so detached from it because I had shut off my emotions. My emotions were frozen in time. The longer you freeze, the thicker the ice gets. So, um, <laughs> you know. So after that first year, start writing a book. Go back to retreat. And each year, something more happens. And um, I went from, it's been a whole process. I went from having to own my story, having to breathe my story. And, and that sounds weird, but it's so healing. The second year of the retreat, um, I had I, I had a moment where um, I call it my sacred, my sacred moment of release. I, I, I had one, I, I've had a few, but... Um, you know, there were a couple different times um, where, I, where I just had to breathe my story. The first year was owning it and just letting myself feel the sorrow over my story. And that was just the emotion part. But then the next year, and, and again, you know, I, I talked with my counselor going into this retreat. And, it, and you know, she said, I finally get to the point where I do this. And, and this is the year of 2014 where we're starting to dig into the, into the rape. I looked at one year and said, you know, time I said, I just want to be off on it. So get me ready. So we had six weeks of just dealing with my fears and concerns and apprehensions and desires for the retreat. By the time I got there in 2014, I was ready to do some work. Um, and, and, and that's what God needed. 2015 is where I, I grieved my story. You, know, you got to own it first before you can really deal with it. And I've been dealing with the rape. So by the time I get to retreat all 2015, it's finally starting to take root. And each year there was something different. It was, you know, then, you know the following year, the theme of the retreat was, was the kingdom of God is. And we're talking about the different parables. And the one that really hit me was about the pearl of great price. And, and it hit me that I'm valuable to God. I I am the, the pearl of great price. You, Kevin, are the pearl of great price. And we have value that I am valuable to God. And I realize that I have a responsibility. And that now, because I have value, I have worth in His eyes. Not because of anything I did. All those activities were trying to earn approval. That's all it was. It's the only way I knew to find worth. It's the only way I knew to know that somebody cared because if I was seen, that meant that somebody someone cared. And I got some attention because I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't know how to say I'm hurting and I'm dying inside and I need help. So I go from owning my story and grieving my story to I'm valuable realizing that my story is worthy of being told, that I have worth, and I now have a responsibility. And if you had told me in 2012, 2013, that I would be on multiple podcasts, international podcasts, and speaking, and having a book out, and I'm a life coach, if you had told me I was going to be doing these things, I would have laughed you off the face of the earth, literally. 
I would have kept laughing until we found the edge of the earth. Because up until then, I did not have worth. I didn't believe I was worth it. I had I didn't believe I had anything of worthwhile to offer the world. I was taking up space. And, and that just, you know, I was too screwed up. I was too far gone. And I was too far gone for God. That's what I believed. Believed being the operative word because I'm past tense. Because now I know that I'm valuable to God. Right. I have one. He cares. Yeah, definitely. He was there in the, in the woods. When I was hacked off of him because I'm like, why'd you abandon me? He was there. He knew. Doesn't mean he made it happen. Bobby made that choice. Nobody else. Just because God is there and sees something doesn't mean that he is condoning it. You know? I mean, Bobby made that choice. And, and, And because we live in a fallen world, there is sin. Bobby's choice was sin. And thank God that Jesus' sacrifice covers Bobby's sin too. And and, and, and that might that might kind of gray at us a little bit, but it's true because God, if, if Jesus died for all of that, includes my racism. That's true. That's true. What I see in my head is the fact that you traded the image that you had of yourself for the image that God had for you. Mm, that's a good way to put it. Yes, and yeah, and, 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 I, and I don't have my I don't have my head wrapped around that all the way. No, it, it, it's still it's a process. It's a walk. But it's a wild ride. It's fun. It's it definitely fun. is. And now the thing is, this ride, this ride could go on for a long time, uh, in the sense of our conversation, yeah. not the fact of the negatives. But uh, what I okay. want to do is, I want to land this plane a little bit. And what I want to do, I'm trying to remember what I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know what it was. Now, it was somebody's listening, and they could go through some of these challenges that you're ha- you had. And then you've working mm-hmm. through, or you work through. Mm-hmm. How can people get a hold of you? Your information, you personally, your books, your teachings, your podcasts, um, anything, websites, stuff like that. Yeah. And I'll have it in the show yeah. notes. But tell some people, okay. tell some people listening that might be going through. Sure. How would they get a hold of you? Yeah, and I appreciate that, Kevin. It, it would be my honor to walk someone's journey with them. If they might same way somebody walked with me, the same way I have friends walking with me now. You cannot do this alone. So if someone would allow me the privilege of, of helping in one way or the other, it'd be a huge honor. Um, I am on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Everything is under my step ahead. Um, and, and there's a story behind that. We didn't get a chance to do it. Maybe next time I can get into that a little more. But it, 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 kind, of comes, it kind of comes out in the book, though, too. Um, but Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, My Step Ahead. My website is mystepahead.com. I'm all about the theme of the show, of the, the website is you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. Okay. So what website is mystepahead.com, My Step Ahead on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I also have a page you know, on the Life Coach and I do speaking. So that's com. People can contact me there. Web, email addresses are on both of those pages. Um, I'm also um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn just with people. Um, the book is available um, 
Amazon and Kindle. It's called This Much I Know, The Space Between. Um, lovely if you want to pick up a copy, that'd be great. I love, I'd love to, uh, love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Um, I have, I have a, a, a weekly, what I call Hump Day Help, I send out. If people want to text next step to 31996, I'm just got a little text encouragement I send out each Wednesday. If they give me their email address, um, I'll send them two free copies of the book, uh, two free chapters of the book. Um, like I said, um, my website will have, I've been on a lot of different podcasts. Um, this show will air after the summit. I'm, I'm part of a mental health summit next week. It's May 5th to 7th online. Um, there is an, an access pass people can purchase that would give them lifetime access to it. So if people want to go back and listen to it after it comes down off the internet, um, I'll have that link again on my website as well. They can purchase that. Um, and then, May 18th, I'm also going to be part of another global summit um, called Dare to Speak Up, and it's about breaking the shame of ground trauma and abuse, and about the courage to speak up and share your story. So as I get as I get more information on that, I'll have that on my website as well. Okay, cool. Many ways to get a hold of you. That's great. I like that, and that's what we do. We're helping each other right now, sharing the information mm-hmm. um, to change people's lives. So let's. Let's, I always like to end with a prayer. Um, I, I put a nice little bow on this uh, conversation because somebody's listening. Somebody's going through some of this stuff. Let's, let's make a little short prayer. I mean, um, you know, a minute or two or whatever. Um, let's pray for somebody to kind of guide them to make the decisions to start releasing some of the stuff. Actually, oh, I, what I see in my mind is help them get the key to unlock that door that they've been pushing things mm-hmm. in so that they can mm-hmm. get these situations resolved. And let's do that, and then we'll close from that point. So can you, can you do a lead us in a prayer? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Father God, thank you. Thank you for who you are, for your healing power, for the stories that you're writing, and that whatever the chapter is that someone's experiencing now is just that only one chapter of a glorious story that you are writing. Father, I pray for those, that person right now, be it male or female, whatever they are going through, Lord, that they would feel your want, your power, your strength, your light, your love permeate the cracks of the mask. Lord, I love, love the Rich Mullins quote, it's not going to matter if you have a few scars. No matter if you didn't live. Father, I pray as those scars as they develop Scars are signs of healing. I pray, Lord, as the scars develop, that you are the healing bomb. Father, that as someone's locked in that room of shame and doubt and fear and, and embarrassment and guilt and, and, and everything else the enemy's trying to throw at them, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you use standing in the window with love in, their, in your eyes, smiling at them because of you love them so much. And Lord, they would be thrown to the door or the window or whatever, and they would crack it open even more and let you in. Father, if there's some way that Kevin or I can be part of that journey, to give them the courage to reach out to us, and to give them that strength, that, that courage, that boldness, that trust, that risk, that willingness to take the risk of love. And, 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 and dare to believe that they are worth it. 
And if you'd allow any of us to walk that path with him, even if it's just one step, we'd be honored to get to be able to skin off to somebody. Father, continue to, to heal. Healing is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Father, continue to heal me, Kevin, and the listeners, or that we may be your hands and feet, that we would be your light zone in a world that needs it desperately, Lord. And that as you continue to not only write the story now, but then, Lord, as you continue to write the next chapter, and the next chapter, and the one after that, that we would be beacons of hope for all this man and his family. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Kevin James. I am the host of the Millennium Beat. I've been on the phone with Sue Bowles. I appreciate you very much, Sue, for taking time out of your schedule to join us tonight. No, I appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you so very much. Everybody, again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week at the same time on wherever you get your podcasts. But we do go on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and our website, Every Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we release a new podcast. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in today to the Millennium Beat Podcast. I hope you heard something that was encouraging to you. We'd like to hear from you with your story, so write us at stories at themillenniumbeat.com or give us a call at 407-624-9957 and leave us a voicemail. You may also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel. Please like us and share us with your friends. You may also go to our website at themillenniumbeat.com and you'll find our podcast and our YouTube video. You also may find a calendar there with past and future guests and dates and times. Plus, another way for you to contact us with your stories or questions. This has been a Millennium Beat LLC production, copyright 2020. Views and opinions of the guests are not always the views and opinions of the Millennium Beat LLC. You've been listening to the Millennium Beat with your host, Kevin James. I'm going to give you a little snippet of a show called Family Matters with your host, Paul Kendall. If you want to hear more shows like that, go to KendallFamilyNetwork.com. Once again, I'd like to thank Paul Kendall for the use of his show. Welcome to Family Matters, a daily look inside the real world of parents and their children. I'm your host, Paul Kendall. Monday through Friday is typically filled with hectic work schedules for adults and equally hectic school schedules for children. And Sunday can easily become a day just to do everything that you didn't get done on Saturday. We are the busiest generation in history, and if you're not careful, the week can pass you by without proper rest. Just like automobiles are designed to require proper maintenance, our manufacturer has designed us to require a day of rest. In Genesis 2-2, it says God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Many Christians get so busy with church work that they sabotage any hope for a true Sabbath. I remember years ago when I was minister of music at a church, Sunday mornings we would often oversleep because we'd been out late the night before. Then we'd get up and run around the house shouting things like, socks, where are my socks? Then we would speed to church, bickering all the way, and then I'd open the door to the platform, put on a big fake smile and say, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? After service, I might say, oh, 
I've invited some people over for lunch. What? My wife would say, we were going to go to McDonald's. And besides that, the house is a wreck. So I tell her, um, look, you go on and I'll stall them for 10 or 15 minutes. And this would produce enough frustration to last the rest of the day. Week after week, year after year, we lost our Sabbaths. Eventually, we learned the importance of having a day of rest and worship. Mark 15:24 says, Now, when evening had come, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. You see, it was a common practice, even in the time of Christ, to prepare for this important day. So we began to prepare. Saturday night, we laid our clothes out and made sure we knew where the socks were, and we discussed our lunch plans for the next day, and we got to bed at a decent time. What a difference that made. You see, everyone deserves a Sabbath, a day of rest and worship. This Saturday night, take a little time to prepare for your family's day of rest and worship. Then, Get up Sunday, take the family to church, and enjoy the day. God says you need it. Guard your Sabbath and don't let anyone or anything steal it from you. And come Sunday, the smile on your face will be real. That's Family Matters. I'm Paul Kendall. For more Family Matters and to learn how you can bring Family Matters to your church or special event, log on to thekindlefamilynetwork.com.